and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staten of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And uh, today we're also joined by uh, Dean Rousseau, who's the CEO of Ethics SA. That's the Ethics Institute of South Africa. And they have had uh, a couple of, uh, of interesting surveys that we've talked about over the years, Cobus, a couple of times. So we're very, very happy to have you on the show today, Dion. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, pleasure to be with you again. Thanks. And you are joining us from Pretoria today or, or Johannesburg? No, I'm in Pretoria. Pretoria. The Ethics Institute are, are based here in Pretoria, so that's where I'm speaking from today. Great. Well, uh, b- before we get started, I want to give a little bit of background on why we asked Dion to join us today. And it's in part because of a series of, of research projects that they've done over the years, but culminating in this February, where they did a, a rather large extensive survey across 15 countries, over 1,000 people, on uh, perceptions, Africans' perceptions of Chinese businesses. So we're going to kind of delve into that. But Dion, before before we get started, I thought it would be uh, in- interesting for you to give us a little bit, a very brief background to Ethics SA. Who is it? How did it get started? What's the funding of it? And is there an ideology or a perspective or a point of view attached to it? Um, Ethics SA started out in the year 2000. Uh, and the objective of the organization is to promote ethics uh, in societies. We say our, um, our vision is building an ethically responsible society, and we do it by focusing on communities. And there are four types of communities that we focus on. The first one is is the, the business community, the business sector. The second one is uh, the government sector. Um, and then we also focus on professional associations. And very recently, we also started working in schools. And within these four um, groupings, uh, what we do is, first of all, uh, thought leadership, where we are always involved in research around ethics, but also in setting standards uh, for ethics. Uh, and, and, and this survey obviously falls into that part of our activity. But then we also do a lot of training uh, for uh, companies, for governments, uh, for professional associations, and also for schools. And the third activity is uh, advisory services that we provide to the same organizations. And finally, we also are quite involved in making assessments of uh, the current state of ethics uh, in organizations and also the ethics risk profiles. So that, in a nutshell, is what we do. You also asked about the funding. We are a totally independent organization. We started off uh, with funding from the Merck Foundation in in the US. Uh, That funding lasted for the first 10 years of our existence. Currently, we are not funded um, by any big funder. We we do receive smaller grants, but uh, all in all, we are now much more of a social enterprise who, who carry out costs through the services uh, that we provide. Good. Okay. Well, so we got that out of the way. Let's now dive into the survey and some of the results. And I think it's interesting because ethics is actually in your name. Uh, and ethics are a very relative thing. You know, one man's ethics is another man's, you know, moral crisis. So we're going to get into the, the cultural relativity issues that come up in your survey. But beforehand, this 
This was a survey, again, done across 15 countries, concentrating largely in three. Let me review the six key questions and some of the results, and then have you kind of dissect it for us before we kind of, you know, start to question you a little bit on it. You asked six different questions. You asked the following categories were identified to measure the perceptions of Africans towards Chinese businesses. Okay, number one, reputation of Chinese business in Africa, quality of Chinese products and services, social responsibility of Chinese business in Africa, economic responsibility of Chinese business in Africa, environmental responsibility of Chinese business in Africa, and employment practices of Chinese business in Africa. If you take all six of those categories, even before I read the results, I went, oh, this is not going to bear well for the Chinese. And it didn't. <laughs> uh, it came out that you, most of your respondents were decidedly negative. Um, and it turns out not even subtly negative. They were extremely negative towards the Chinese. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the findings, and was there anything in those findings about those six topics that surprised you? If we look at, at the six areas, um, the area in which um, Africans tend to be most negative or have the most negative perceptions is quality of products and services, um, coming in at uh, almost 56% who, uh, who disagreed that um, Chinese products and services of good quality. Uh, then, then it goes down. The second category was environmental responsibility coming in at uh, around 54% uh, of respondents being negative. Then employment practices, 46%. Uh, social responsibility also around 46%. Reputation, 43 And then economic responsibility around 40%. Now, as you say, there's not really... Um, much of a surprise here. I think uh, Chinese products are and services are often associated with not good quality, and uh, and, and that is why it's perceived to be the most uh, negative. While um, the the aspect that is um, perceived to be um, the least negative is economic uh, responsibility. And yeah, I think there's a realization on the part of Africans that uh, the Chinese presence in uh, on our continent is making a, um, a positive impact. In other words, it's having uh, a positive impact on economic growth, on uh, job creation, uh, and so forth. And that's the reason why that is the least negative of the six aspects that we've just reviewed. Um, do you? In, well, one of the interesting aspects of this of this research um, for me was that it opens in kind of interesting, interesting kind of middle space between whether, on the one hand, you, you're testing you know the real the Africans' real experiences of Chinese businesses or Africans' general perceptions of Chinese businesses. Um, did, could you get a, some kind of a feeling of to which extent these negative perceptions were based on on actual interactions with Chinese people or companies or products and to which extent they were shaped by media descriptions of, of, of these products? Um, it's, it's hard to tell. Um, it, it is obviously a perception survey. What we try to do is uh, ask people not to guess. So on all the questions, we always gave them an option if they don't know, to indicate that they don't know, rather to, to venture a guess. So uh, that's what we're trying to, to minimize, that 
that gives a factor, but obviously this is um, a quantitative survey. Um, and to really answer your question or to give a proper answer to that, I think one will need to, to add a qualitative survey where you really sit down with people and drill down and, and, and find out. So, um, yeah, this is typically just a perception. Uh, and. Now, those perceptions are, are largely shaped by the, the, the types of people that you interviewed to get their feedback. And, and the headline is Africans, uh, which gives the implication that it's a broad-based survey. But when I look at the, 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 at the breakdown of the quantitative, you know, eight people in Angola, 33 people in Benin, uh, 18 people in Cameroon, 43 in the DRC, those seem to me, and I'm not a specialist in surveys by any measure, so I, I don't know, those seem to be very, very small numbers. Uh, and then almost 60% of the respondents had postgraduate degrees, and then another double-digit had graduate uh, had university degrees, which seems much higher than the average. So how representative of Africa do you think the figures and the findings are? Um, I would not claim at all that it is representative. I think one needs to understand that uh, this is an online survey. Now, the moment that you move, uh, that you use an online survey, you obviously start excluding uh, all people who don't have access um, to the Internet. In other words, to do an online survey or even more basic than that, don't have access to, to computers. So um, it's for that reason that we are not surprised by the fact that it is um, the more educated um, uh, parts of the population who typically would participate in an online survey. So you would get exactly the same type of thing in any other online survey on any other topic. <clears throat> um, then in terms of, of the numbers, yes, some of those numbers, if you have um, those small numbers for a country, you can't really deduce anything from it. Uh, that's why you would see that in the survey, we did focus uh, in a deeper analysis on the three countries where we got somewhat more sizable samples, not at all what, um, what I would uh, like to see. Um, but where we made a comparison specifically between South Africa, Nigeria, and Kenya, because in those three countries, uh, we had more sizable samples. Um, and it was very interesting to make this comparison across these three countries, um, <clears throat> because if you look at across all six categories, there's a clear pattern emerging, emerging, namely that South Africans and Nigerians tend to be much, much more negative about the Chinese presence in Africa than the Kenyans. Um, so, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, what, what you say in terms of limitations, I totally agree with you, and I would love to see this being done on a much bigger scale. Uh, but I think then one will have to change your methodology from an online survey uh, and do much more of an on-the-ground people-to-people survey. It's one of the problems that we have in, in, in this entire field of Sino-African studies that to say the words China and Africa are, are such vast 
imprecise terms to describe, you know, a billion exactly, people on each yeah. side, mm. that it, it really is a limit. Cobus, mm. hey, it's interesting because what Dion was saying was that on the economic front, perceptions uh, are better than on every other front. And, and that reminded me of the, the academic journal that you edited last year, where you talked about China's soft power. And there was a very strong story and compelling story that the Chinese have to offer when it comes to soft power. But it wasn't in the context, and it wasn't framed in the context of the West narrative. Uh, soft power might be an economic growth story rather than a soap opera. And so when you, when you hear what Dion's saying and when you, when you saw these results yourselves, did that challenge or echo or support what you, what you came up with your own research findings? Yes, um, the, I think it confirmed to, to a large extent what what we found um, in, in our brief research as well, um, in, in the sense that the, the most positive perceptions are frequently um, related to the amounts of people, like amounts of Africans who are who might be employed, especially who might still be employed in the future. Um, you know, kind of by by if, if Chinese businesses grow and expand in Africa. Um, obviously, in, in Africa, that also comes. With the whole issue of whether whether Chinese businesses employ Africans or not, so that you know, kind of, I, uh, you know, I, I would agree with Dion that a, uh, a qualitative survey will probably be, in, in certain cases, or a combination of quantitative and qualitative, will probably help to to kind of bring those those issues kind of to to the the fore in in more detail. Um, what I actually found really interesting about the survey is actually in a way enabled by some of the limits that you pointed out in the sense that because it it's an online survey and it self-selects for people with, with higher postgraduate education, for example, than, than is normal in Africa, um, you get this interesting snapshot of what people with postgraduate degrees or, or graduate degrees think of think of the Chinese, you know, kind of, and, and as a class, one would generally assume that these people might be more, more pro-Chinese, you know, so, so, you know, because among other reasons, because the Chinese have um, set up links, you know, kind of with African elites frequently, and, and it seems to not actually be that case. And, and so that was quite interesting. Um, um, Dion, do, do you have an idea of, um, of how, or could, could you perhaps um, hazard a guess about how those kind of opinions will change if you have a, a, a wider range of Africans doing a similar kind of survey? It's a very interesting point to, to, to explore further, because if you look at studies, um, and um, I'm now referring to studies that are really cross-cultural, and, uh, and if you look into the whole issue of tolerance, it's quite clear that there is a big correlation, or very clear correlation, uh, 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 correlation between level of education and level of tolerance. The more educated people are, the more tolerant they tend to be. Uh, I'm thinking about a specific study that I looked at, at some time ago, which dealt specifically, specifically with religious uh, tolerance. And there it was quite clear. So if one make this assumption that the more educated people are, the more tolerant they are to also to cultural differences, um, then I think the implication is clear. There's also another dimension that um, 
really struck us as we went deeper into this research because part of the Chinese presence in Africa is is a presence that is to some extent well uh, if not coordinated at least well informed by Chinese policy um, but then you also have the informal Chinese traders uh, and I think the Chinese government has almost no control over them and very often on the lower levels of society people's uh, experience of the Chinese might be the Chinese trader um, that is doing business in a community and that might inform their perception of the Chinese. So I think uh, the point that Eric made that this is an extremely wide concept is indeed true and I think uh, any research of a of a more quantitative nature um, is always prone to to those vague type of definitions. Yeah, you know, for me, it was very frustrating to read this uh, this survey, and not because of what the Ethics Institute of South Africa did, but more just kind of the frustration that I have with public perceptions, which, as you mentioned, can be formed or shaped by you know one or two incidents based on their own you know anecdotes and their own personal experiences. Mm. And I guess what frustrates me is that on the one hand. You know, people oftentimes lack the context. Cobus and I have talked about how we feel that the United States oftentimes gets a pass on public perception in Africa, even though it has multiple military bases, it's engaged in multiple military conflicts, the volume of trade between the U.S. and Africa is falling, it's very much a resource extraction-based trade, they're not really doing much more uh, than, than extracting oil, but yet, you know, public perception of America is very, very high. The Chinese have a much more balanced trade, uh, they're, they're involved in many more sectors than the U.S., and they're called a neo-colonial. Again, I don't say this in defense of the Chinese, I say it that... Mm. When we talk about the, uh, you know, the, the Chinese non-interference in, and this is something that came up in the in the context that you provided around the report, how the Chinese support of dictators in Africa, and I just kind of chuckled to myself because many of those dictators are in Africa simply because of the French, the British, and the Americans, and and that context isn't there in people's perceptions, and that's unfortunate. Of course, we're asking a lot of people when to to go deeper, but it is it is frustrating to me that the country that produces the iPhone, which is arguably the best phone in the world, but it costs $1,000. So when we talk about quality, well, you get what you pay for. In South Africa, the frustration that you mentioned in the report was how there's a price war coming between African producers and Chinese importers. But that benefits the consumer, and that's not mentioned. So I guess that's, you know, you're feeling my rage kind of pent up over years of, of not having the context that people have. And again, this is not meant to defend the Chinese. It's meant to kind of place everything in a broader context. Uh, I, I don't, that's more of a statement than a question, but I'd be curious to hear your response. No, um, obviously there's there's also the whole history of colonialism that we can't ignore and if we delve into that then you would find that the perception specifically if it's it's framed within the context of colonialism would be quite negative Uh, and there are many developments in Africa that that, that points to that. on, on your on your remark that um, that the trade between China and and Africa is much more balanced, I'm not not too convinced of that, uh, uh, Eric. Uh, I've I've seen recent statistics, uh, and it was mentioned in the South African media last week uh, about um, the Chinese South Africa specific. Uh, 
trade, where about 100% of what gets exported is unrefined natural products, while what is imported is, is, is about 100% um, uh, produced refined projects. So, so, so there's still a, a lot of inequality there as well. Um, but, I, but I think all in all, what we see here uh, and is, is the role of, of the media, because I think we are all very well aware that, that the Chinese are given quite a rough ride by Western media. Uh, and obviously these um, perceptions are created and they stick. But I think it would be a mistake to simply say, well, um, the reason why there are these negative perceptions has to do with the role that the media play. Um, I think there are just too many incidents on, on the continent uh, where we can really point and say, but this is an inferior product. This is exploitation of, of labors. This is uh, um, environmentally irresponsible uh, practices. And, and towards the end of the report, you would have seen that we say uh, that if we really want to move beyond this um, and not turn this into a mudslinging um, exercise, then it's important to realize that the Chinese um, corporate responsibility performance really can improve and there are really some areas where they need to to pick up their game but then the other side to to blame the chinese for this would be um to turn a blind eye to the role that african governments have to play in terms of ensuring the the terms of engagement when chinese companies do invest uh, in african uh, countries so so we think the solution uh, does not lie in pointing fingers to the Chinese, yes, uh, alerting them to the fact that Africans perceive their presence as negative, but then on the other side also to, to put the, or, or to put uh, the emphasis on the role that African governments need to play in ensuring that when Chinese uh, companies do come and invest here, do engage in trade with Africa, that there are certain terms according to which this should be done. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of the balance of trade, I just want to make very clear that I was saying it was better than the United States. And I'll refer you to a 2013 U.S. General Accounting Office uh, comparison between the U.S. and China, and a third of, of exports from China to Africa are machinery. And, and that's a very empowering type of export. Now, to your point about South Africa, the imbalance there is obvious and it's dangerous, and Jacob Zuma himself has pointed that out. Uh, but it, it's really comparing the U.S. and China, where the U.S. is really only pulling out oil and not sending much back. And, mm. and so that, that was my point there. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Kobus, I guess let me ask you a question as a, as a media scholar. How much, uh, you know, uh, do you think it's because the Chinese are just absolutely terrible for the most part when it comes to uh, media management, public perception, PR? Um, and, and this is not unique to Africa. Um, I will tell you that here in Southeast Asia, it's the same thing. Uh, you know, these same issues are being addressed in Southeast Asia, where the criticism of the Chinese, the fear of the Chinese, the negative perception. Uh, so how much of it is the fact that maybe the Chinese just don't really care? You know, it's not, they're so pragmatic. They may care on one sense because they invest a billion dollars into things like CCTV and soft power. But at the end of the day, if they're bringing home the resources, if they're generating the jobs at home, and if they're expanding markets overseas for their products, that's all that counts. And everything else is really secondary. Mm, I suppose. I mean, I, th I would add to that that maybe... Uh 
what we also see is that is you know um, how can I say it? Um, I don't think that either the Chinese or the or the Americans, if, if you're going to be comparing those two, I don't think either of those two are particularly good at speaking to Africans. You know, um, Americans almost never address Africans directly. You know, they never address Africans as audiences, for example, or as as publics. Um, I think what what you'd rather see is that the Americans have have built a communication infrastructure through the last hundred years, where their media communicates with everyone at the same time, um, and um, you know, kind of. So there's there's a very famous um, film film scholar, film historian um, called Miriam Hansen, who who coined the term vernacular modernism for, for early Hollywood movies, where she said that um, Hollywood movies came to represent modernity itself, um, and in that sense, it spoke to every public in its own language about the same thing, which is moving ahead in the world. And I think, to a large extent, American influence still sits with the, the kind of, the afterglow of that, of that development from the 20th century, in the sense that America doesn't really need to, direct, to directly address Africans because its culture is already has kind of pathways have been obviously you know kind of has been built to African publics you know kind of throughout all of these decades, which of course the Chinese don't have. You know, kind of the Chinese don't have any natural pathways to make to make daily life in China understandable to to Africans. And I think maybe that is the real the real kind of situation where Africans tend to have much more positive perceptions of 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 Europe and America, even though Europe and America are frequently quite kind of uh, uh, you know, kind of aren't, aren't particularly that much that very different from from the way the, from the Chinese. In a way, the Chinese just become the, the exploitation becomes more visible. You know, kind of because there's there's nothing else going on. Yeah. In, well, that's that's that interesting. Dion, let me let me end the show on a question about your conclusions here. And one of the things that you kind of came up with as a recommendation was that there should be this dialogue that exists between the Chinese and Africans on, on all of the issues that were raised, on the negative perceptions, on quality, on you know, environmental degradation, all the problems that we know that are there. I guess, you know, and this is, this is where I, I kind of got frustrated again because it's, it strikes me as a little bit ideal, idealism in terms of, A, do you have any precedence of anywhere else in the world where the Chinese have done and successfully engaged in such a dialogue? And B, when we talk about the Chinese, as you talked about, there's so many different actors here. There's the state, there's the SOEs, there's the, there's the independent traders, there are the, the migrants. Who represents that diverse audience to have this kind of dialogue? And so is it not overly idealistic to recommend something that broad that really at the end of the day can't be successful because there are too many actors and too many stakeholders? Uh, let me start by, by first saying something about um, idealism and, and morality, <laughs> since you've now taken us there. Sure. If you take a... If you if you look at at how moral uh, development or uh, development on moral issues, I, I should rather say, occur, it is always through dialogue. Uh, if you take an issue, and you can take any issue, whether it's sexism, racism, slavery, whatever you want to pick on environmental uh, responsibility, it always starts with conversations uh, with people raising their concerns. And it is only through raising concerns, through moral dialogue, that ultimately uh, a certain momentum is being built up 
and a, a consensus is being formed either on a local, local or on a global basis. So what we intend, we, we have, don't have um, the aspiration that we will have one dialogue and everything will be fixed. That would indeed be not only idealistic but naive. But we think this conversation must start. And this conversation will start. It's not only an idea. Uh, we already are in the process of organizing this dialogue. It will take place in Nairobi, in Kenya, uh, towards the end of August this year. And what we want to bring, who we want to bring together, there are two fairly small delegations, uh, African and a Chinese delegation, consisting of people um, representing business networks, and that would be uh, at least half of the people who would um, participate there, uh, would be from people um, who are playing a leading role in some or other business network. But then we also would will have a representative or more from civil society, from academia, but we also would like uh, uh, one or two policymakers there. Uh, and and the, the whole purpose of the dialogue is to talk about what type of mechanisms can we put in place to ensure that there's an ongoing conversation between uh, between China and Africans on these issues because we believe these issues are not only important for the relationship but also for the economic development uh, of the African continent. Dion, um, just before we wrap up, there was one thing in the survey that I was, was quite kind of tickled by. Um, why do you think the Kenyans are so much more po positive about, about Chinese investment than the rest? Like in, in certain cases, they really were mm. like markedly more, more optimistic about China-Kenya, you know, kind of relationships than the Nigerians and South Africans. Well, it's, it's also something that, that puzzles me, and I, I spoke to a number of persons trying to uh, to make sense of it, uh, and it's really two guesses that I have. Uh, the one might be with um, with the length of engagement that there might be longer and more extensive uh, investment and and trade between South Africa and Nigeria uh, and and. China. Um, and the other one might have to be with maybe um, a bigger presence of Chinese television in, in Kenya. Hmm. In other words, CCTV being more prevalent there than elsewhere. Interesting. I didn't think of that. Uh, well, the report is Africans' Perceptions of Chinese Business in, in Africa. It's a survey, February 2014, so it's relatively new. It's an absolutely fascinating read. Uh, not a very long read, but a lot of these surveys sometimes go on for, for forever. So a good 35 pages you can do, uh, it's, and so I really recommend you checking it out. The website is ethicssa, that's E-T-H-I-C-S-A, only one, only one S there, .co.ca, ethics.co.ca. Just look for it there. Uh, Dion, thank you so much for joining us today. If people want to stay on top of, uh, of what Ethics SA is doing and the Ethics Institute of South Africa is publishing, what's the best way for them to follow your work? Well, the, the best way is by far to go to our website, but can I just correct the, the, the website that you've given? Okay. Because it's ethics, 
It's sxsa.org. Ah, okay. I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at a website right now. Okay, so we'll change it to .org. There you go. Much easier. Ethicssa.org. Same thing. Uh, and so that is the best place to stay on top of everything that they're doing. Uh, so we really, really recommend it. There's actually content in French and in Portuguese as well. Uh, hopefully, one day you'll maybe even put some things in Chinese there, right? Most probably we will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for people to stay in touch? Um, I'm on a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And you'll see my name when I comment there. And also, I'm on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Our Facebook page now has over 167,000 followers. You know, every week I give a running count of this just because I'm pinching myself over the the, the surge in popularity <laughs> that we have. Uh, Kobus and I update this thing almost 18 hours a day. Uh, I'm over in Asia. Kobus is in South Africa. And it's a great place to be involved in these discussions. Uh, Dion, I hope you'll share it with the folks at Ethics Institute of, uh, uh, you know, of South Africa, what we're doing on Facebook, in part because it is a great way to get uh, another kind of pulse of what people are thinking, in part because 80% of our following on Facebook is under the age of 25. And the vast majority are from North Africa and South Asia, interestingly enough. So, again, uh, it, it's not a, a, a full, complete sample of Africa, but it is a large sample size that we can kind of gauge what people's opinions are. And I find just very quickly, just from our Facebook page, Dion, that younger people, there's a big generational breakdown. Younger people tend to be more nuanced in their views of the Chinese than older people. And older people tend to have either traditional archaic views of the Chinese or a, a a very kind of colonial view uh, of, of, of Africa, even Africans themselves. So age might be another interesting kind of delineation to look at. Yeah. Something that we see, you know, at least in our Facebook community. Uh, our podcast here, we're now doing 25,000 downloads a week. Thank you to iTunes South Africa for putting us on the homepage. Uh, we really appreciate that. So a big welcome to all of our new listeners uh, to the podcast. If you'd like to listen to us, iTunes is the best way to find us, but we're also on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher, we're on mobile apps for iOS and for Android. So you can find us there just by looking for the China Africa Project. Until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.